Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Davida Breyer, who is the author of Sinkhole, um, her first novel. Uh, Davida, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to talk to you today. Could you start out by sharing a little bit like the synopsis of this novel and what it is about? Sure. Um, It is... It's a bit of a crossover, but it is a suspenseful coming-of-age novel um, immersed in the 1980s in central Florida. Um, The main character has been living in exile for 15 years, and she's called home. And in coming home, and that home is a tiny, tiny hometown in central Florida called Lorita, um, she's forced to confront the death of her best friend. But in confronting that, she begins to realize that maybe, maybe some of what she believed wasn't true. It's it's a little coming of age. It's a little suspense. It's a little Southern Gothic. It's a little bit of everything. So this is your debut novel, but you have been writing for a long time. You've been writing zines for a long time. And so and one of the things you did was um, create a zine talking about I'm holding it up, creating a zine talking about creating this novel. Um, so. I w- could you talk a little bit about before we get into the novel that process of what it was like to have have been writing for a long time, but then sitting down and saying, "Okay, I want to do this larger project, this new project," and and what that was like for you. Um, I've been publishing zines since 1995, and largely they've they've all been either review zines or essay driven, usually you know personal zines or thematic, I'll edit. And, and this was a very, very different project. Um, but I approached it like I do most things with a deadline and decided that if I was going to do this, I could give myself a year to do it and just try. And it might be horrible. It might not, but I, I kind of stumbled about trying to figure out the best way that I would work. And, um, so I spent that year figuring out the, not just not just the characters, but the process. So you start this, and what's interesting about this is the novel, like you said, is set in Florida. Um, and could you talk a little bit? Uh, and it's also set in Florida in the 1980s, and also in 2001. So it's not present day Florida. Um, so. Why Florida? Like, what was the choice of setting this in Florida? What was it about Florida that really sort of drew you into this as a setting and for these characters? Um, So I grew up in South Florida. And when I was thinking about these characters, what they go through, I kind of wanted to show some of that duality of Florida. And, and there's a, there's, there are multiple dualities. There is, of course, the easy duality that you can see in the novel that pertains to class. And there is the Florida that a lot of people know, the beaches, you know, that, that rich part of Florida. And then there is a very poor part that 
you don't really know unless you experience. Um, I also wanted to show some of the duality that I think that if you don't, if you've, you know, never really seen Florida as a, as a local, that it's a bit of a joke. There's Florida man, there's ridiculous wildlife, things want to kill you, politics want to kill you. You know, Florida is a difficult place, but there is also great beauty in, in Florida that is not only overlooked, but actively destroyed by people who don't see it. And when we, you know, when you look at all of the, of just the buildup, the draining of the glades, the allowing big sugar to do what it wants, and, and just the, you know, the way that a lot of the southern part of the state has been over, overbuilt. And we see some of the problems in that when we, when we get hurricanes in the area. But what about the beauty? What about what was there? And in a sense, setting the book in the 1980s allowed me to isolate my characters in a time and a place before the internet, before cell phones, before social media, and and put these kids in a small town in, in an isolated time. But it also allowed me to show a time and a place too when that wild part of Florida was still wild. While we had damage and there was a lot that had been done to the state, you know, more harm has been done, had been done in those years and, and since to the environment. Right. And one of the things that I thought was great was that two of your main characters spend a lot of time out in nature, right? They have this tree that they spend time in. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that choice of having them really um, being a part of this kind of na- that nature and, and in Florida and what that means? I spent a lot of time as a kid in trees in Florida. I mean, if you're in a tiny town like that, there aren't a ton of places to hang out. A tree makes as much sense as anything. But again, you you see the th- of the three main characters, there is generally the consumption and, you know, sitting in a house when you're with the, you know, the antagonist and everything is, is kind of that construct. But Michelle and Morris and the other two characters do spend their time in tree in, in this tree and and their friendship is very organic. Their their attempts at who they're trying to be is very organic. And there's kind of that that difference in that, you know, maybe what is what is pure for want of a better word, in in trying to figure things out and then all of the layers of of social construct around it that that confuses everything. And and setting this, so let's talk about these, especially our three sort of main characters. We You have this setting, and setting this in the 1980s also allows you to um, have them think about issues of sexuality and sexual identity in ways that... Um, is a little more nuanced than it is now, right? In in different ways. Um, so, but your main character, Michelle. So, can you talk a bit about her and, and how you found her as a character and who she is? Um, Michelle, as she began to develop as a character, I began to realize that she was asexual. And it also, you know, it further drives home this friendship and the depth of the friendship and the importance of the friendship she has with Morrison. Only it is in the 1980s. And she knows she's not like the other kids, but she doesn't know how she is. She doesn't really understand what that means. She just knows that's who she is. And she doesn't have a word for it. Um, Much in the same way, you know, the other characters understand their, their sexual identities 
And they're figuring that out at a time when there wasn't a lot of support for teens, especially teens in a small town. And trying to figure that out in an in in its own way, that is this underlying daily danger that that particularly Morrison faces. In so there's there's the you know in the book there's the murder, there's other stuff, there's things going on, but just I also wanted to talk about the daily dangers and things that kids were facing. Um then as they are now, just in different ways. Right. In that I appreciated too, that it's not always like this clear cut kind of thing, right? Just because you are rich, it doesn't mean that you have X, Y, and Z dangers or because you're poor, you have these other X, Y, and Z dangers. And so there's a lot of complexity with these characters too, and with their family lives and what that looks like. Um, So yeah, let's talk a little bit about maybe Morrison. And so Morrison is this, your character who. It comes, he's gay, right? It's really hard. He's also uh, doesn't know who his dad is. Single mom. Um, so, could you talk a little about a little bit about him? Yeah, and and Morrison again. He's you can kind of see where with with the characters. There's a lot in the book that has to do with um, both absent and present fathers, and so. There are a lot of, there are, you know, as, as many that are absent, there are as many that are present. For Morrison, he is figuring out who he is, and he is introduced to a lot of things from, you know, the books he reads, the men his mother dates. He, you know, he has a love of nature. He has a love of punk. And he is also, you know, a young gay man. So he's figuring all these things out together. But, you know, how does that, how does that fit? in one person and what does that mean and what, you know, what is he going to do and and how is this all going to work? And while he loves his mother, his mother really doesn't, doesn't have her shit together. (laughs) You know, she, she's trying and she means well, but she's, she made, you know, she made a questionable decision maybe when she was 16 or so. And, and it's affected, continues to affect him because they're almost more peers than, parent and child. And I love uh, how you kind of um, connect this to, right, and because of who she is and because of her age, she was sort of coming of age in the 60s. So there's also this idea of what does that mean, right? What does that mean for young people? Um, And, and, we we learn a bit as we go through, I think, I think it's really fun to learn a bit more about Morrison and sort of how different elements of his life and his naming and who his mom kind of was and and that his mom kind of wants him to be like at one point he's like my mom just gives me condoms and I have to figure out where to place them around you know to place them around the neighborhood or place them in the bathroom so his mom wants him to be something that he really isn't you know and so we see that struggle too with him and yeah, his mom. She, she's she's more afraid of him being a teenage father than she is herself being a mother mm-hmm. and and then we have so we have the, our third sort of character we have um sissy so can you talk a little bit about her and bringing in part of this triad and and what she kind of brings to this um so sissy is you know it, she's our villain but at the same time she's also a messed up kid 
she's also lonely in her own way. And not saying that you necessarily have to like her or have sympathy for her at all, but just understand there may be a reason she is the way she is and why, you know, she was, she was the start of the novel because the, the real question I had, and she was the first character was, um, and I, I started the working on the, working on the book in, in 2016, um, at the very end of 2016. And I'm like, we see all these adult narcissists and we see the damage that they can do to other people when they have power. But what would a teenage narcissist look like? What would a, what would a child a narcissistic child look like compared to, you know, you, you might not see them for what they are. You might be able to go, Oh, they're just a kid, but what could they do? What kind of damage could they do? Especially if some of the other characters were very vulnerable to that, or how would they be vulnerable? And so Sissy, Sissy was the start of the novel and, and just what would, what would that kind of character do? And, and, you know, how would she influence her? How could she, um, harm or help in some cases, these other more, more vulnerable characters who, who don't have as, as strong of a sense of self yet. And I also thought that having her as a teenager was, we, it was interesting because we often have these, um, like I, I think of the bad seed or the good son or right, but it's often these like either small children or it is like you're saying it's adults who have this kind of narcissistic complex. So what, yes, what happens when it is a teenager, when it isn't like this small child, we can either write off as like horribly sadistic or not write off as horribly sadistic. Right. But like thinking of that, that middle ground. So I appreciated that. That it wasn't, you know, that we were in this different, this different space than we normally are. And and I also thought about it is so often when we see that type of dynamic, um, we see it, you know, with someone in power, in a position of power, a boss, or we see a romantic relationship. Um, but you often don't see this among friends. And sometimes those can be the most destructive of relationships because you're not looking for that same power dynamic. And so to sort of get at this, I'm guessing, you you know, you talk about it a little bit, like you had to sort of do some research, do some digging. So let's talk, there's two sort of different areas that I, I mean, there's probably multiple areas, but can we start with like that? What is it like, what did you feel you had to do to really be able to show this and to talk about this in some kind of meaningful ways or really connect and get to know who these characters are that are talking to you or you're creating? Um, I would spend a lot of time at 3 a.m. thinking about the characters, letting the characters talk, talking to the characters. And that that would just happen night after night. It's happening right now on the one that I'm working on where, you know, I can't sleep. They just pop up and I start thinking about a small detail. And that's the characters grew out that way. I also did stand, you know more standard research. What does this type of abuse look like? What does, what is the impact? I, I tried to listen to people who had the experience of being in those types of relationships. Um, and so there's, there's, there's the component of figuring out, you know, fictional character and then what's the whole psychology behind some of this. Um, 
so it was a, it was a combination. I mean, some of my research was also, well, I kind of remember this being on about this time. Let me go make sure that this TV show was on this time on a Tuesday night at this month of the year. I mean, I, it was, it was kind of compulsive on, on the making sure my pop culture references were good. And, and my one editor at New Orleans called me out and he was like, Mm-mm, MacGyver didn't de- debut for another two months. You got to change this. <sighs> okay. <laughs> I will say, I mean, anything, you know, because that's my coming of age spot. Like, so anything where it's like all these 80s pop culture references. And I will say I was very happy that in your zine, you talked about Remington Steel and having a Remington Steel fan club. So I, I love those little like touches in there where it was like, yes, I remember sitting there and watching that. Or I have to tell you, brought me back to like... um getting the VCR right often we read these things about like there's these pop culture references or like we think of stranger things or these nods to the eighties, but I loved this. Like I'm going to, I got my Walkman or we got the, like, I still, it's gone now, but the, the, you know, strip mall in my small hometown where I was so excited when we finally like joined the video rental store so I could rent, we could rent like the VCR, right? So there's those kind of bits in there that really connect us to um, the, like what it was, you know, if you had a certain kind of childhood or if you lived in that space, it really connect us to that space in these fun kind of ways. Yeah. I remember getting our first VCR. I was like maybe 13 or 14, somewhere in there. And I mean, if I traveled, it went with me. That's how much I loved that VCR. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I remember, like, it reminded me of, like, sneaking over to my friend's house because her parents would rent any kind of movie and my parents would not rent any movie. And I was like, we can. So I was like, oh, the VCR. I, <laughs> I miss that. Now my kids are just like, we can just watch it anytime we want. <laughs> so there's that nostalgia piece. Um you also bring in, right, so we have these, going back to sort of the sexuality and sexual identity, um, one of the things that um, comes up is they go to a gay bar, these three, and they go a couple of times and, you know, and I I had this discussion with somebody um, who was researching the 80s and the 90s and talking about, like, how much... AIDS has changed or even how we think about it and talk about that. So um, can you talk about, because you could, there are ways you, you could have, they could have gone to the gay bar, but they go. And then one of the times they return, there is kind of this um, celebration of life for someone there. So could you kind of talk about some of those decisions and, and why you wanted to make sure that that was in the book? Um, something I've talked about with, with my friends as well. And you think about, you know, gay bars previous to, you know, we still need safe spaces, but we don't need them like we did in the same way. And in the eighties, gay bars were also a community center. They were more than just, you know, dancing, drinking, hookup. They were also part of the community, especially community that was being devastated at that time. And in, in particularly, you know, I have it set, they, where they go, they're going to West Palm Beach. So it is, you know, in an urban area in South Florida where there would have been a lot of people dying at that time. And I didn't want to set the book at a time. That's, that's one of my criticisms of things like Stranger Things is, you know, we get the Spielberg essence of the 80s, you know, where everything is shiny and kids have all this freedom and, you know, parents are just dumb. You know, 
there is there is there was a whole lot going on at that time and what was going on you know with aids at that time what was going on to even just you know behind the scenes politically it was a very tough time for a lot of marginalized groups and for people who you know didn't have any economic power and i didn't didn't want to set the book at that time without it being a more rounded look at the time. So yeah, the first time they go, it's it's all fun. It's a drag show. But the next time it is the celebration of life. Um, and I, I also wanted to make, you know, the under, you know, one of the subtexts in all of that one scene too is um, we hear all these family values and, and here here is, you know, the celebration of life. And, and, you know, the other young woman at the bar that night has just lost her father. It, how is never said exactly, but she is surrounded by people who want to provide that support and be those parents that she needs. Meanwhile, we've got these three kids, you know, and in some cases from, you know, and you know, from, from conventional households who aren't getting the support they need at home. So I kind of wanted to talk a bit as again, fathers come up, you know, throughout the novel um, and, and family and support. And so this was a moment to kind of give a nod to the ways family can look. And I love, like, like you said, so fathers come up a lot and, and, you know, death comes up in multiple ways. And I have to say that, like, so um, Michelle's mother writes obituaries for a living. And I kind of love that (laughs) in these ways. So could you, you know, so we've got like death kind of surrounding these families and these characters all different ways. So could you talk about that decision to like have her mother like write obituaries for a living? (laughs) Well, and, and part of it was just the, you know, she does write obituaries for the living. She's very much trying to give something back to the living, but she is incapable of dealing with her grief and the grief of her children. So there's the difference between death and, and these obituaries, but grief and um, really being able to, to manage or handle that. And at one point, Michelle says that, that she she could give these other families what they needed, but we they weren't getting what they needed at home. Um, much much kind of in the way about, you know, the, the shoemaker and the shoemaker's children. I mean, it's... It, it takes her a long time in the book to really come to terms with having lost her husband suddenly and come out of that grief and depression enough to be as present as they need her to be. And so and one of the things you do, right, we talked is move us, you know, between the 1980s and just 2001, right? We could, you could have brought it all the way back to present day. Um, and, and so it was, and I don't know, like, how does that, did that connect to kind of thinking, like, why 15 years later, right? Like, was there something in there that just, was it just the characters just said, like, this is when we're going to go back? Or what was it about? What is it about that kind of time frame that you created? Um, I think there were a few different reasons. One, I wanted them far enough ahead in time, because as much as I didn't want a cell phone in the plot, in the eighties, I kind of needed one a little bit. So I didn't want to put them too far ahead. Cause like, wow, 20 years, that seems like she's been gone too long. Ah, but 10 years, you know, I don't know. 15 just kind of hit right. And, and it's also, um, it's June 2001. 
And I also wanted to set it before 9-11 as well, so that we kind of have it still this, these, this kind of before time, before everything will change again, you know, in the future for these characters. And I wanted to just kind of set it in that, in that period. And then, and also for readers, like, I think there's this intensity with it because you do, um, throughout the majority of the novel, move back and forth, right? We get past, we get present, we get past, we get present. Sometimes we stay in the past a little longer, we move back and forth. So we get a bit of, especially a bit of Michelle continually throughout and so there's that tension there and that idea of like what's going to happen like you know wanting you know part of wanting to know like okay what all happened in the past but then how is it unraveling with her in the present as she's starting to think about this past again and I, I was trying to to have her figure it out as obviously the readers were like, wait a minute, this, this kid's trouble. You need to get away. But unraveling the lies, I kind of wanted to have happen, have Michelle figure it out as the readers figuring it out going, wait a minute, this isn't right. And I'm hoping in some cases as people were like, hey, this is really, oh, oh, wait, no, I see. Okay. Now it makes sense why she, they did these things. Yeah, and there's a lot of right. And I appreciate that move between past and present, you start to see that right if we just read the whole if we just got, here's everything that happened, here's what happened now we wouldn't get that tension that we do get as readers as we move through it in these ways. So the other thing is, I, the, you have some nods in here to, you know, people, you know, or friends or that kind of thing, uh, family. Um, was that something that you were like thinking intentionally? And and if you don't, you know, and, and if people haven't read your zine or they don't know you, they might not know, like, this is what you're referencing. But was this intentional or was it one of those things where you went back and were like, how can I throw in Motley Crue or whomever it might be? <laughs> So, so most of them were, as I was writing, I'm like, oh yeah, she would totally have loved that book. And that's a really nice nod to my friend, Jean. Or sitting at home, you know, watching Law and Order is just an ongoing kind of joke between AJ and I about, you know, we, we will, we will message you. I'm in a hotel, Law and Order's on. Like, it's just kind of this thing for years. So it seemed right for that character to do that. Um, the Motley Crue reference um, was a request, and that was from my son. And he he wanted to make sure he, he that I put a, a Motley Crue reference into the book. Well, and and like so, at one point there's you know issues with like cars and overheating and things that you know that and, and even I think you know eating peanuts on the you know Florida driving to Florida and so some of it is this kind of real life and I think um, you mentioned that the gay bar that you use was in reference to a bar you'd been to so some of this was like sort of pulling from your experiences and yeah in fact the 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 car. The car doing all of that and trying to get to Florida was was informed by a trip that I took in 1995, maybe, probably 1995. Um, and I attempted to drive my Subaru to from Maryland to Florida, and it did not like that one bit. And I mean, that in fact, that trip was was what inspired the name of my first zine was I was, un, you know, I was trying to fix this overheating, the coolant issue, my friend I was driving with, she made some joke about a slow leak. 
And that was, that was the whole start of my first zine. Um, I have taken trips and eaten, eaten boiled peanuts and they are a delicious, terrible mess. Um, you know, so there were certain things and yeah, there was a, there was a bar in, in Pennsylvania that looked like it was on a, an unassuming just residential street that you got inside and then you realized was much bigger on the inside than on the outside. And much more fun. So let's uh, just have to ask you also about the title, right? So it's Sinkhole, right? So we've got this novel Sinkhole. So was that, um, was that, were you like, I, uh, I, do not come up with titles for anything very well. So was this, did you start with this title? Was this like, how did the title come to you? Um, I didn't start with the title. I don't remember maybe six months in, I don't remember exactly, but it was an aha. And this is it because it worked on multiple levels. And um, it just became that. And that was it. Yes. And I will, because that's what I loved as reading the book, right? I love the, like, seeing all the like yes there were points where I was like ah it fits this way it fits this way right and so I will say that like that's another thing I love about like this kind of suspensefulness of it um figuring out like we've got this book it's called sinkhole like why and all the different references or all the different ways it can be part of that um so what is like I'll well, I'm trying to think of how I, are there other things about kind of these characters that really drew you in or that you wanted? Well, even if it's some of those minor characters, right? So Michelle has a brother, there's this, was there anything else about like some of the minor characters that you were like, I really want to make sure that they are here to kind of help or support or show something? Um. The, the one that comes to mind first and foremost is Harry, Harry the dog. Um, Harry the dog was, was never really part of my intention. I had just got to a point where I had, had written up to, you know, M- Michelle finally makes it home and Harry shows up. And I'm like, wait, I didn't have a place for a dog in here. Like, what do you, well, okay. All right. I'll just write you in. Come on. And I went, wait a minute, Michelle really needs this dog. This dog showed up, but he has a job to do here and he does it well. And he's the first thing she connects with because she has isolated herself so much. She's so, you know, disconnected. And she can't be because because she's sitting alone with Harry and Harry's guiding her and helping her without her realizing it. So, so Harry showed up, he's one of the the secondaries and, um, Rosalita, Rosie, her, her brother's girlfriend is like the only one with common sense in the entire book. I mean, she's just like, what is wrong with you people? You just talk. Right. And like, and it, I love it because there is, right? Like through the whole thing, sometimes it's like, well, you could have just solved this by talking, but you get it, right? Like there's so many moments where if you're on the outside, you see it, but you know, you're like, I can't, I can't, I can't, bro- what for whatever reason, I can't broach that. The time has passed, right? There's these things where you're like, I, I wouldn't have known that. So, um, yes, <laughs> the idea of like, 
just come on, talk to one another. And you're like, somebody finally said it. Like, but. Um, And I think, too, in the beginning of a novel, we see Michelle's mother through Michelle's eyes. And mothers are very often not, you know, they're, they're seen as, as this add-on to their kids, particularly, I would say, too, in, in many cases, in, in a lot of 80s nostalgia, they're just kind of there to fill whatever role. It isn't until she comes home, she has adult eyes, she talks to her, she sees her mother as a full person. And we feel the weight of the grief and everything that this poor woman has been through that is kept at arm's length by a teenager, and I felt that was important to start showing her mother. It, we, we don't get to see her as a full person because we're seeing her through Michelle's eyes. We see her through adult Michelle's eyes towards the end. And we get more of her story and how everything falls apart so quickly and for, for, very, for no reason. Right. And, and that idea that sometimes it does take getting a job, right? Moving out, like going to these spaces to realize, okay, um, what my parents had to do or what we could have or couldn't have is a lot more complicated when I'm in my thirties or, you know, or older than when I am 16 and I just want to like be able to not eat, um, you know, hungry man TV dinners or whatever, you know, it might be. Um, so we kind of see this, that difference once we've experienced that, right. Once we kind of understand and can have those conversations. And if her mother is, you know, it's implied that her mother's trying to keep, make things easier in her head for the kids and, and try to keep the grief off of them. She's also probably keeping the money worries off of them. She's not letting them know how hard she's struggling. She's not explaining why they're moving. It's fun that they're moving into this trailer and they're going to get to share a room. She's not explaining they had to leave the house because they couldn't afford to stay there. So again, you know, that trying to make things okay by pretending they are ends up creating a distorted view of what really was going on for, for children. And, and I, one of the other things I really appreciated was that, um, it's really hard to leave home. And especially if you are poor, right. Especially if you struggle that you need to do something better than everybody else often. And often for people that's athletics, right. But like, so Michelle is also a swimmer that comes through the whole thing. And I appreciate kind of her coach in some ways talking and just like, this is what's going to happen. Like sometimes it's a big push out that door. And it's also, and, and you show this throughout, it's a sh- internal struggle a lot. I think with the, especially young people who are like, is it okay for me to leave? Like, you know, should I be going out to college or should I be going out and doing this on my own? Or should I be staying home and being with my family? And so you see, so there's that kind of tension in there and discussion as well. That that was also part I wanted wanted to talk about class a little bit and the fact that you know because Michelle and Morrison are are working poor that so often when confronted with you know an opportunity or their automatic reaction is no because that's it just isn't possible and the barriers there are barriers that they feel that they just organically feel from being poor and those they're, they're just imposed naturally that these things might not be open to them, might not be possible to them. These, these are worlds they haven't seen or 
just they're not going to be able to do it. You know, when and for Sissy, she can't see those barriers. She gets aggravated with them for seeing something she can't. And that is all part of Michelle's struggle, too, with this, you know, college scholarship and how to, you know, how to want more without feeling like you're turning, that you're looking down on your family because you get caught in between having, you know, seeing that there might be more or something else you want and what you have and know without understanding the complexities of what your parents going through to get you there. Mm hmm. And these little like and throughout this, we see these these little like nods too to what that working poor like I'm going to I can look at my money and I can afford to buy fries. Right. Or I'm going to just slowly eat the Doritos and hope they last or whatever it might be. Right. And also that tension between my you know my friend is really rich my friend can give gives me things that my family can't and how do you kind of and we kind of see how families feel too that tension or feeling like they can't give to their children in the ways they want right and and then you know sissy's like oh no this is fine this is fine i'll pay for everything and then she throws it in their faces constantly right which is right and that like and so there's those little things that it's like yep that that's a thing right like i've seen that we see that right you know um there was i think in the point at one point they were shopping and was she gonna go buy guest jeans like there was something where i was like yep i remember because it was like if you could tell who was really rich because that's what they had right you know they had this kind of jeans or that kind of and so um we're really kind of getting to see and feel that um in some some really authentic ways, I think. So you have, so tell us, so this, um, you debuted, this came out in March. Yeah. Is that right? No, May. Or May? May. May. It's something with an M, right? So May. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit like, um, are there things that you want to kind of promote? Are there things you're looking for? Do you want to sort of share like shout outs for, for what's going on with Sinkle if you're talking or available? <laughs> Um, just, you know, it, it came out in May. Um, it kind of, it came out much stronger than we were expecting. Like, I think all along we thought there was a really good chance of this kind of developing a bit of a following, maybe even a cult following. Cause it's, it's a little, it's, it's not quite suspense. It's not quite coming of age, but I think that certain readers are just going to like it and connect with it. And that's, that's what we've been hearing, but, um, got a really nice review in the in the New York Times which kind of blew everything up for for a few minutes but now I'm kind of back to you know it's it's a lot of work to to try to tell people about a debut novel from a small university press and you know that's that's my job in this and and trying to make sure that um, it finds readers and and that's a tough thing to do right now and and just the way things have changed in publishing the way things have changed in media um, and it's, it's, it's kind of a confusing time to, you know, I work, I work in publishing by day too. And so I can kind of see this all happening, but then I have to apply all these changes to what I'm doing as well. And, uh, just that, you know, I, I kind of want these characters to go out in the world and, and talk to people. And, and there is an audio version 
coming mm-hmm. out. Is it out now or it's is out. it coming oh, it's it's out. out? So there's an audio version. I know that some people love audio. So there's an audio version as well. Um, but these characters, they are, they're, they're a lot of fun. And I will say as a child of the seventies and a teen in the eighties, like there were these, these, I really appreciated like those moments of realness in there is what, you know, I'm like, yes, that's exactly how it was. And that suspense going back and forth going, you know, like you were at one point, I think you said like you were the readers figuring it out as she's kind of figuring it out. Um, and it's there, you know, even though you're like, come on, don't you see it? You're like, ah, that's why. <laughs> um, so are you, is there, so we got this, you're pushing this. Is there something else? I'll ask you my like question. I most asked, like, are, is there anything else you're working on now? Anything you want to kind of put out there that <laughs> is next on the docket? Um, there is, I, I started, uh, the character, a character started showing up and I couldn't quite tell if it would fit with the plot that I had kind of going on in, in the background. And I realized, nope, this is a different character and this is this is I have two different books okay book number three you go over there for a while and uh book number two the character keeps showing up at 3 a.m which is how I know it's it's getting real and and I've I've started a spreadsheet um so I know that uh I'm I'm kind of on the road what's what's nice this time is I know what my process is so I don't have to figure that out and I can jump ahead to plotting and character development without trying to like have these false starts of how to how to write a novel. Yeah. <laughs> Which is always, I think, like the trickiest part, right? <laughs> how do we do it? How do I figure out my process? How do Should I, I be doing this? Am I wasting my time? Why are you doing this? This is stupid. You're insane. Wait, no, this is interesting. Maybe it's okay. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm hoping that maybe, maybe I can shave a little bit of that back and forth self-doubt out this time. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and then have fun with it, right? Have fun and enjoy your characters and these characters. And I'm guessing you're bringing in completely new characters, right? These characters are going to go out and do their own thing in the world. Um. <laughs> they they are completely new characters, although um, I really like Tana French and I like how she is able to loosely thread her world, usually by one character that links that you don't realize will be the main character in the next. So I'm I'm. I'm I'm debating, I'm debating doing a little bit of that. I, I, I had figured that out early on before I even got too far along. So I think I, I know what I'm going to do there. And see, then there's opportunities. And then you keep everybody reading, guessing, right? Like, who's going who's gonna to come? Who's going to come up next? Um, well, but so, Davida, it's been really great talking to you about Sinkhole. Um you folks will be able to find your website and um, get the book at the local bookstores and get out there. And I'm guessing you can also order directly from University of New Orleans Press. Um, I don't know if you have any local bookstores you that you want to give a shout out to that are carrying it in your um, area. I'm a huge supporter of indie bookstores. So I have an entire list on my website. Um, if you're in the Baltimore area, Atomic Books and Greedy Reads both carry it. Um, there are a number more. There's, there is, you know, I've gotten letters because I've, I've been trying to talk to booksellers because that's what I do during the day. I mean, it's carried as far as Alaska, um, you know, and uh, yeah, indie bookstores all the way. And, and even if you are into audio, indie bookstores can do that. 
Yes. Yes. And usually for the same price, if not less than some of the big conglomerations that, yeah, don't need it. So again, <laughs> Davida, thank you, Davida Breyer, who is the author of Sinkhole, which is her debut novel, um, Suspense and Mystery and all that excitement. Thanks for being here with me for New Books and Popular Culture. Thank you.